right, Peter. We're Hi. at it again. How you doing? We are good. Doing well. What's up? <laughs> it's been it's been some time. Yes. I got got a little bit of um, family vacation, which was nice, and and then yeah. we jumped in. Uh, to, just had had a few weeks where we weren't able to record anything. Hmm. But we're it's good to be back with you, and I, I think we can jump right into this topic without yeah. bantering too much and wasting people's time. Sure. My wife actually told me, uh, just jump right in next time. Yeah, uh, stop, yeah bantering. So, stop bantering. You guys are not that funny. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, today we're going to be talking about um, post-colonial theory on the book that we are um, reviewing, uh, Lindsay and Pluckrow's uh, Cynical Theories. And uh, today we want to just talk a little bit about post-colonial or decolonization. And you've probably heard that before, decolonization. Uh, you, you've probably heard of movements called de uh, disrupt the texts or decolonize white um, texts. So what does that really mean? Like, what does it mean to like decolonize the curriculum? And this is kind of a movement, according to this book, that really starts, draws heavily from some neo-Marxist uh, culture, as well as Michael Foucault, James Derrida, Edward Said. Um, it's some critical educational theories. And what they're wanting to do is... Um, they want to show how white Western culture has kind of convoluted and um, uh, through the colonization of their own radical, basically takeover of some of these poorer countries has led to these poor countries having kind of traditions of, uh, I guess, white mindset. So when it when somebody takes over a tribe, for example, uh, decolonization or or excuse me, people that believe in decolonization would say, you don't just change the people, you actually change the mindset of the people. And mm -hmm. um, what decolonization curriculums often want to do is get rid of that colonization, the original colonization, and try to find the source of that particular tribe or people group. So that we could understand, you know, their literature, their science, uh, give them time and space. It was really created right around, well, of course, right after the 1940s and 50s, really came out in the 50s and 60s. And just like most postmodernism uh, gained a lot of stream, mainly because of World War II. Uh, postmodernism, I think we always have to understand. I mean, you're probably going to hear this, hear me say this a lot, uh, is seriously a huge reaction to the devastation that World War II caused. So it's a pendulum shift. And I don't ever want to do happen, you know, don't ever want that to happen again. And so as Britain was colonizing the world, it became significantly a lot less popular within just a few years, honestly, about 10 years. Um, and the purpose of this movement really is to create justice, uh, at least as it understands the concept internally, so that these the justice for marginalized uh, social groups or constructed groups instead of individuals to give them voice again. And so that would de that's what decolonization, or, or, or when somebody says we should decolonize the curriculum is really all of what it's all about. So decolonizing, decolonizing the curriculum is about removing the assumptions of Western superiority, or, I mean, is, is that how it's presented? And then, uh, you know, what's the alternative to that? Yeah, what I are, mean, I think what are post-colonial theorists trying to advocate for? Yeah, in fact, I just read an article by Lindsay right before I got on, and what he's often asking, you know, per, the, it's very perplexed because what he's trying to, he's asking three questions or what de 
um, colonizers are asking three questions. Number one, what's the curriculum? Two, what could possibly be meant by decolonizing it? Three, how did the curriculum come to be colonized? So those are the three things. So, you know, what's the curriculum? What could possibly be meant by decolonizing it? And then what should, how should the curriculum come to be colonized? And so, um, so basically words like, uh, you know, uh, racism or justice, it really kind of has, it, it operates from a white kind of oppressive mindset. So when you're reading these texts and you're looking at it from a white perspective, um, your view of oppression or, or racism is going to be vastly vastly different in its definition than somebody that has been the recipient of racism or been the recipient of slavery, for example. And so decolonizing is trying to get to the original, um, uh, you know, I guess the, the person that was colonized, if that makes sense, to, to get to the original perspective of their view. So that's really what it's trying to do overall. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> hope okay. I explained that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, hope, I hope some people could follow that, but yeah, no, the, um, the, one of the things the book mentions, you know, um, Pluck Rose and Lindsay is that, uh, Edward Syed, who's really the considered the father of post-colonial theory that he yeah. was heavily reliant upon the work of France Fanon, who wrote mm. the wretch, the wretched of the earth. And, um, and it says to Fanon, by 1961, colonialism represented, above all else, a systematic denial of the humanity of colonized people. So central to this theme, to Fanon's analysis, uh, that he speaks throughout of the literal erasure of people's identity and dignity. And so the idea was to be deeply critical and openly revolutionary of Western mm. colonialism. And then of course, he was not postmodern in his approach, which Edward Syed was. And so he applies it differently, but he's, but Syed is basically taking what Fanon had um, articulated and, and just applying it in postmodern, in a postmodern way, which is why we get James Lindsay and, and Helen Prucker is saying, this is really the first example of applied postmodernism. And then that becomes sort of the foundation for the other theories that follow, queer theory, uh, you know, gender studies, um, critical race theory, et cetera. Yeah. So. And I should say this too, that the activist, it's this, this movement is really about activism. So uh, if I could, right. you know, yeah. So what decolonizing the curriculum is really about is it's the assumption that I have to read all things as uh, a dynamic of systemic power. So mm. that all society has been fit into these decisions. And I need to go in and disrupt these dynamics because the oppressed, the oppressor and the oppressed, I have to disrupt that so that I can equip students with knowledge of the mindset of these people that were defined as vulgar by the oppressors. Okay. So I want to get into, you know, the mindset or the critical consciousness of, of the people that had lived under the oppressors really. So the decolonizing mm -hmm. is trying to get rid of that and to, you know, show the, the, <laughs> you know, yeah. show what, what I, um, the mindset of, of, of these people, which is in itself is, is not a, you know, it, it's, in itself is a noble task. Yeah. Right. I was just going to say, is there something redeemable about this approach? I mean, uh, one of the things hmm. that I was thinking or reading about with post-colonial theory is 
is that really Syed was was just noticing that when he was trying to teach about, you know, feminism or gender studies, all he could find were resources written by white men. Right. And so yeah. you have like the women's studies mm. and all you have is 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 examples of white men talking about women and how what they think about women and, and their place in life. So it, there is some truth to the idea of, you know, can we trust the when all of the evidence or all of the research has been done by one demographic of society? Yeah. Uh, you know, isn't there going to be some bias involved in their explanation of, uh, you know, our, our world and our culture? And but of course, the danger hmm is assuming that just by adding more voices, you now get rid of the bias <laughs> because there is no way of, you know, we're all biased and we're all going to bring that bias into it. And so can I trust a, a female author who's talking about her situation and status in life just because she's female and, and just because she has a perspective that's different from mine, mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that she's less biased. Right. In fact, she might be more biased in her presentation of it. So what what Lindsay and Pluckrose say is is that no, we need we need to have those various views and diversity is not the problem, right? A diversity of views is not the problem. But what we do to critique those views is important. How we assess what is true or not is going to be through empirical evidence, right? Can we study and research the the uh, the philosophy that's being portrayed and then understand really where the where the truth lies um which is probably you know somewhere taking from several different different views but anyways the idea is that there is a truth hmm. out there there is a philosophy that we can all accept um and of course pluckrose and Lindsay are you know are liberal uh, you know promoting just a secular kind of world view mm -hmm. uh, that would that would rely upon science empirical evidence yeah I think we could critique some of that from a Christian worldview and say, that's not the only thing we need to be considering here. Right. Which is, it's almost, um, you know, like we need to go beyond what colonialism was attempting to do, which was just promote Western values and, and recognize that Christianity itself is part of Western values. It's part of what shaped Western mm -hmm. values and it itself is good, but we cannot remove Christianity from it and promote it. So I'll talk more about that later on. Yeah. That's probably reading a little bit of that from Bob Inc., but we're getting right. ahead. Yeah, we are. Yeah, <laughs> that's okay. No, I was thinking, I, I like what you said earlier. Is there some redeemable things about it? I mean, because right. um, Edward Syed, his book Orientalism, which is a which is a very well written book. I mean, I've only uh, read sections of it. I haven't read the whole thing, but I mean, he he talks about you know, have you ever looked at an you know a pamphlet of an ad to a different country, and you know if you look at like if you're going to go to Bali or if you're going to go to Vietnam or if you're going to go somewhere like the Orient, usually what you, what you often will see is something really exotic and, you know, all of these treasures and these, these wondrous, you know, magical caves. And, and what is the ad doing? Well, the ad is actually communicating in a sense what white men, like especially after Napoleon, when he conquered a lot of this stuff, what his, 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 um, his concept when he conquered some of these lands, he brought back a significant portion of the Orient to France. And so a lot of people kind of had that in their mind that, oh, this is the Orient. This is the, this is, Egypt. you know, when I go to Egypt, it's all about, um, you know, these, these artifacts. And 
what there's a disconnect there. And Syed was really critiquing that because he was saying, you know, there's a disconnect when you actually talk to the people that's radically different. They're not all exotic, you know, <laughs> than the people that actually went in there and took all these artifacts. And so what, what the book was, was it, it, it asked some really good questions, you know, is um, which is, you know, is there a separation between these two groups? And I think we could say, yes, we could say, you know, there, there definitely are some real interests there that are totally contradictory, but what post-colonials want to do, they want to develop on that and they want to keep going and they want um, to like, can we hear the voice of the, these people? Um, but I don't want to jump way ahead. That's, that's because when we get to the close reading aspect of it, you know, um, we start to, we start to get to the point where as a philosophy, as it starts to calcify, we, we begin to see some of the serious problems, but um, yeah, right. I think originally it came from a good intention, what, yeah. my understanding of it. Let's jump right on to that and talk about the, how, how the mindsets did, if you're okay with that, going on to page 76, where he, they, <laughs> they express sure. some of the various, or at least the way this colonial mindset has transitioned to a postmodern or applied postmodern mindset. Um, so I'll just read the, the statements because it, it's taking the idea, you know, here's the Western colonial mindset that would say Westerners are rational and scientific, while Asians are irrational and superstitious. Therefore, Europeans must rule Asia for its own good. And that's the Western colonial mindset. Right. Then they would define the liberal mindset as saying all humans have the capacity to be rational and scientific, but individuals will vary widely. Therefore, all humans must have all opportunities and freedoms. So that's obviously the position that Pluckrose and Lindsay are advocating for. And then they would say postmodern mindset says this, that the West has constructed the idea that rationality and science are good in order to perpetuate its own power and marginalize non-rational, non-scientific forms of knowledge production from elsewhere. So now you've got a massive shift away from liberal thought, liberal mindset to saying that really even, even the ideas of rationality and science are fraught with problems with colonial thought. And so therefore they should be rejected and uh, we should replace them with non-scientific, non-rational forms of thought. And, and then not only that, now you have the applied postmodern mindset, which would say, therefore we must devalue white ways of knowing for belonging to white westerners and promote eastern ones and so we gotta we gotta start reducing or or eliminating canceling various forms of colonial thought uh that we've imbibed uh through our education you know through our curriculum we need to replace that with eastern thought and uh and raise elevate those voices which is which then leads to decolonize everything and yeah, yeah, it's good. That was good. That's a good summary. And, Go going. And, <laughs> yeah. Well, decolonize everything and research justice. You know, it's mm. the it's the thought that uh, really to provide a just and fair curriculum, you need to you know stop using uh, the typical Western curriculum, the typical thought of of previous you know the the books that we've read and and appreciated, uh, even including Dr. Seuss. And right? we've got to right. cancel those. <laughs> And replace mm. them. 
they're actually wanting to get rid <laughs> of everyone from Churchill to Shakespeare to Dr. Seuss and whatnot, right. and just put these on the platform. And it's funny because I actually am a big, I love books and I love going to bookshops. And um, one of the things I've actually noticed at my local bookshop, for example, I'm seeing less and less and less of the classic literature. So mm -hmm. when I, when I used to go there, even like five years ago or three years ago, they used to have a pretty big classic section. Um, everything from, you know, Herman Melville to, uh, uh, you know, Friedrich Nietzsche to, uh, yeah, to Chaucer and, you know, you name it. So um, that section now is about that big and it's been just mm. taken over by um, minority voices, um, which, again, I'm fine trying to understand minority voices, but what it's basically doing is drowning out because um, this is considered, you know, these were the oppressors. And so I have to, uh, it's kind of like the concept of, you know, defund the police or whatnot. I don't, don't want to get ahead of myself, but like, you know, we have to completely uproot everything and start all over again. And we've been so poorly influenced and traumatized by, you know, hundreds of years of these oppressors that the only escape from it is to, is total escape, or excuse me, is right. the only way to get away from it is just complete escape from it. And to make sure that we don't see it, we don't smell it, which leads to the whole cancelization of speech. Because eventually what we'll be talking about is why they believe in censorship. It's because one of the reasons why we're seeing so many people uh, advocate for censorship is that reason, is that if I bring this back, if I bring these ideas back into the forefront, well, what's going to happen? We're going to get a, we're going to get, we're going to get colonization all over again. Right. Um, that's, that's the binary way of how they're viewing reality. So therefore through my activate, through my activization, I have to not just promote these voices, but cancel these other voices as well. So, yeah, which leads to decolonize yeah. everything. <laughs> and, and that's really where I think they kind of end this chapter. And, and I, I we wanted to try to keep this uh, shorter. So I'll, I'll move into that last section. And yeah. then maybe we can summarize and, and give our own thoughts on the chapter overall. Pretty, but I, yeah. I, as far as page 86 and 87, they do talk about uh, the drive to decolonize everything. They give examples like decolonizing hair, <laughs> English literature curricula, tear down paintings and smash statues, erase history while opening up revisionist discussions of it are particularly alarming. And then they mention when Winston Churchill, Joseph Conrad and Rudyard Kipling become nothing more than symbols of racist imperialism and their achievements and writings are too tainted to be acknowledged, we'll lose not only the potential for any nuanced discussion of history and progress, but also the positive contributions of the men themselves. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's happening now to literally everyone that we've that we grew up reading or the classic literature, like you said, it's all being challenged and questioned. Mm -hmm. uh, whether it's, it was really ever read to begin with just to perpetuate uh, Western uh, colonial mindsets. They kind of give two two views, or at least the dangers and problems that this creates. Um, because mm -hmm. even even among postmodern theorists, there is a critique of postcolonial theory in particular because mm -hmm. um, because it does not allow for actual human rights abuses to be addressed. And the way they, the way they argue for this, I don't, they don't necessarily say that uh, post-colonial theory has come under criticism from other postmoderns. I actually think they do uh, in a couple of places, but I was, I was learning about it myself um, uh, when I was listening to another lecture on post-colonial theory, but 
they do say at the bottom of page 86 and, and page 87, they give two claims, two common claims of postcolonial theorists. One is that postcolonial theorists insist that getting a non-Western culture to accept that there are human rights abuses taking place locally requires colonizing that culture with Western notions of human rights and their violation. So the idea of trying to assess human rights abuses, first of all, requires a colonial mindset or a Western mindset. So you already have to colonize a culture in order to be able to critique a particular human rights abuse. And so mm. they don't do it. They just, they won't critique uh, foreign um, nations in that way. Secondly, though, any abuse that they find, any any theoretical abuse that could be out there is really just the result of colonization, of past colonization. Right. And, right. and it's like this catch-22, right? You can't address it. And if there is any real abuse going on, it's only because of colonialism. And so we gotta we we gotta continue our project here of of eliminating Western the Western mindset. Yeah. Um and 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 so that's the the danger again, just to bring it back, is is just to say, like, what do you do when there's actual human rights abuses taking place when women are mistreated or you know, when when minorities are genuinely being exterminated? I mean, yeah. what do you how do you address that? Well, they use a very br brilliant tactic, and that's dialectical philosophy, which is the belief that I could hold on to two totally opposite truths at the same time and be okay with it. So postmodernism does adopt a lot of that. And I think mm -hmm. that's the thing. They they do a tactic of contradiction is okay, which is, you know, I could I want to advocate for standpoint theory, which is the belief that knowledge comes from lived experience of a different identity group and fight for that. And be okay if there's a significant significant amount of violence in this particular country, but blame Western civilization over here for the propagation of that violence, which is really right, kind of an interesting right. view of original sin. I don't want to get too into that, but a good example of that would be Islam. You know, I mean, I think that's right. the first thing that comes in because I have um, a lot of friends who are much more liberal. I have gay friends. I have uh, friends who are not believers who um, are getting away from a, a lot of the far left because they refuse to kind of critique um, the components of Islam, for example. Right. Um, I've got a friend that was a strong uh, uh, feminist who, who served in certain African countries. And when she brought up some of the concerns that she saw with rape and molestation and, and um, what was the other one, um, the cutting off the, of the, yeah. Uh, oh, female circumcision? Female circumcision. She was, uh, she almost got fired from her job. And, you know, and, and when she was taking a class at her university and just kind of threw her all off that I can't, I can't bring any of this up. And she was a long-term, she was a long lifetime uh, feminist. And so, yeah, that's a hundred percent. Well, okay. So one of the last things I wanted to point out was sure. just, I, I yeah. was reading, um, mm. I'm reading this biography on Herman, Bavink, which is one of my favorite theologians, um, a critical, it's a critical biography by James Eglinton. And, and, um, and he actually mentions how Bavink's approach on colonialism, because, you know, he's, he became a parliamentarian um, in the early 20th century. And, and so in 1911, he's, he's advocating for Western colonial expansion, uh, 
but he's advocating for it in such a way that it it does not remove Christianity from from the um, agenda, right? And that the thing was he he acknowledged that colonialism was really presenting um, a gospel, if you will, that was just capitalism and enlightenment values, which I think probably Lindsay and uh, Pluckrose would agree with, like that that's that's actually a good thing or a healthy thing, um, but. But what, or maybe not capitalism, they might critique that. But that was uh, that was what was happening early on. And so even Bavink had some criticisms for that. And he was saying, you, here's his, a quote from a speech he gave in 1911. Uh, it was a public lecture he gave in Amsterdam. And he says this, European culture can be a blessing to the peoples of the world, but it can also be a curse. If, as is actually the case, it undermines the heathens' indigenous religion and gives them no other and better faith in its place. It impoverishes them internally more than it enriches them. So he's saying, look, we can we can try to critique their their uh, and replace their current religious values with enlightenment values, but we don't give them a full worldview that religion affords. And so therefore, because our Western values and our are actually shaped by Christianity, Christianity is what influenced these Western values, then we cannot eliminate Christianity from what we're offering to uh, to other nations. And so he's actually kind of critiquing it and then saying that, right, yeah, Christianity shaped culture, and therefore it must remain a central aspect of what's being promoted. I've I thought Bob, that was, Bob I, was so ahead of the times. He was my favorite theologian in seminary as well. He was by yeah. far. I still have yeah. all of his works right up there. I, I, I yeah, he's fantastic. Yeah. Well, they're still writing more. I mean, this mm. biography is an excellent addition if you want to mm. get it. Um, yeah. And then there's actually, they're working on his ethics as well. So you got the, the reformed dogmatics and now you have the reformed ethics, which I think is going to have two or three volumes. The first one's already out. Wow. Um, yeah. uh, one other quote from him and then I'm, and then I'm done. But he, but he says, uh, if these mighty peoples, uh, speaking of East Indies, China or, or Japan, acquire our civilization without Christianity, of which it is the fruit, they borrow from us the weapons with which they will fight us in the future. This is, this is important because he says the danger grows all the more earnest while Buddhism and Mohammedism, which is he's talking about Islam, have recently been awoken into a new life and secretly equip themselves for a struggle with the Christian faith. And so whether, the, you know, whatever their tradition, he says, what we do when we promote Western, you know, colonialism without Christianity, we actually are creating a, um, a global struggle or we're setting ourselves up for a global struggle between Buddha, Muhammad and Christ. Hmm. And so it's going to lead to this massive, um, these massive global scale consequences uh, of religion, which frankly, I think, again, he, he mm. rightly predicted. Um, the, yeah. The, the, I don't know. Seven. Yeah. I, I may, I may take that differently. I mean, I think, um, but yeah, I, I, I could, I respect it. Yeah. Either way. <laughs> he's just saying, I th I, just yeah, to yeah. close it out to tie it together. He's just saying that promoting sure. Western values without the gospel will oh, result right. in, It'll yeah. result in consumerism sure. and religious violence on a global scale. Yeah. So I, I would agree with that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I wanted to, yeah. I mean, I, I want to, if it's okay, I want to close out too. I, I, I think one of the things that really stuck with this called with this particular chapter is the dangerous, it's a very dangerous patronizing theory. And 
And I liked I liked that because there was something about there's something about contempt and pity that goes involved that is involved in a lot of the a lot of the people that want to just decolonize. And because I think, you know, if you want to change specifics about the curriculum, like just getting rid of John Stuart Mill with Tananisha Coates, I mean, that's what you're doing there is you're actually preventing people from truly learning and having serious education. Um, and you know, I think that we should we should be looking for methodological success wherever it's found. I mean, I I think if it's you know if it's through the Chinese like the Ming Dynasty that thrived and actually we saw a lot of progress during that time, that's fantastic. If it was through the Muslim, um, I, I, I don't know if you're. I, I just I'm reading a book right now that after the Christians burned a whole lot of libraries. Um, a lot of Muslim scholars actually kept a lot of those texts. And thankfully, it was the first, you know, some of those texts uh, showed up much later, which started the Renaissance. Um, yeah. You know, the Muslims actually were responsible for keeping a lot of the actual Hebrew scriptures. <laughs> you know? So I think we praise God for that. A lot of Christians actually were burning a lot of that stuff at one point. Um yeah. African culture has been responsible for a huge amount of progress. We have to understand that Greek and African culture was the was the founder of logic and reason and Athens and you know and uh, you know was was the first time that people started asking these diverse questions about democracy. So what this is doing is not just looking at particular tribes but we should you know and and propping them up you're actually keeping people from attaining a a knowledge about the world that can actually significantly help them and you are seeing that you're seeing that like uh there's a there's a thing that's going on in south africa called science must fall movement you know and um basically it's it's uh it's you know it's promoting from what i understand it's just a it's a part of broader decolonization movement uh and all it's wanting to do is just it doesn't trust any of the science well okay now you're not getting more you're not getting vaccinations you're not getting you're not getting the medical treatment that you know you're uh that these people actually need these things actually can happen if you ignore some of the abuse on that's going on in some of these muslim countries to gays and lesbians and to and to women and to little girls you're not being an activist for change. You're actually keeping them from actually receiving true justice. And right. so, I mean, it's a patronizing theory if you take it all the way over here. Um, you know, I, I do think that Syed had some great points. I don't think you have to throw out everything. Um, right. But this discourse analysis where everything is just these predictable structures of power and and knowledge or oppressor and oppress and just putting everything under these categories where I just cancel all that out. You could very well, it could very well lead you into keeping people from just attaining the ability to read properly and the ability to understand science and reason. These make us, these make us better people. Um, you know, it's not just, it's not my tribe versus your tribe. It actually brings us together. I mean, medical, medical, um, technology has always thrived in open societies where we can all dialogue, you know, but with the assumption that we have to have a rigor to um, research, like solid right. research. We should really? invite that. Yeah. And good research. I think that's, um, yeah. Anyway, 
Yeah, good good summary, good thoughts. Yeah. I, I, I agree. Okay. All right. All right. It was good talking to you. Peace.